In this episode of Jim Questions Everything, I talk with Patty McLean. She's an educator and an instructional coach in Northeastern Pennsylvania. And her specialty is, is, well, an awful lot of things. She's an author, an educator, a coach, a consultant. But what's key to understanding Patty is not that she does so many things for students and teachers, but that all of the things she does are connected. We talk a lot about trauma in this episode, and we look at how both the shared and individual trauma that we all experience impacts teaching and learning. We explore the unmet needs that proliferate throughout education and the importance of meeting students and teachers where they're at when it comes to addressing key social emotional issues. This is a profoundly important discussion. And towards the end of our chat, Patty invites me to open up a little bit, helping me gain a deeper understanding and appreciation about perspective and how that's helped me address my own trauma. As you listen to Patty, and share in her insights, I encourage you to visit her educator blog at thepattymcclain.com. And you can check out her book available on Amazon. It's called A Teen's Guide to Wellness, Purpose, and Abundance. Now, to be clear, this is not a sponsored podcast, but I'm really excited about sharing the work of Patty McLean and all that she does for education. This is a good one, folks. So I want to thank you for being here, and I hope you get as much out of listening to my conversation with Patty as I did in talking to her. With that, here's Jim Questions Everything with Patty McLean. Hi, everybody. I'm really excited to be talking with Patty McLean. As you get to know her in the way that I have just a little bit, you're going to find Patty is non-stop. Patty, I'm so glad you're here. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Now, you are an educator. You work at a nonprofit delivering programs to students about healthy relationships. We'll talk about that. You're an author. So you published a book called Teen's Guide to Wellness, Purpose, and Abundance. You're a consultant for an organization focused on social-emotional learning. You train teachers on wellness and mindfulness practices. You have a Facebook group with hundreds of educators called Empowered Educators. You have a new book coming out. Your mom, your spouse. I'm I'm starting to feel a little self-conscious about all I haven't done. How are you pulling all this off? Thankfully, it's all connected. And I've been working on it for a really long time. I love the quote about the 10,000 hours behind the scenes before the successful parts come out. So... Most of the things you mentioned have been a work in progress for a long time now, and there's just a greater need for a lot of it right now. So it's starting to gain some traction. A work in progress, and yet your body of work is is significant. Let's start with one area, which is the work you do in schools focused on healthy relationships. What kind of things are you talking about with students in that work? Talking about all the things that I wish somebody would have talked to me about when I was their age. So it's a pretty comprehensive program. It covers healthy and unhealthy relationships. It also talks about how to help friends who may be in bad relationships. And it covers both sides of that spectrum too. Friends who are being hurt and friends who may be the problem. And I love that sort of holistic look at relationships and not just a focus on on the victims because if there's going to be real change, it kind of has to come from both directions, in my opinion. And the last part of the program is actual 
relationship skills. So we talk about the fact that there are going to be people that we can't help, but we could always do something about how we're showing up in our relationships. So we talk about calming strategies and how to manage difficult emotions. And we also talk about how to communicate better. And it all ties into really important concepts like consent and literally staying safe when you're hanging out with new people. For the most part, it just opens up a conversation about things that often go either undiscussed or not discussed at all, or they just kind of get glossed over. So we get to go really deep on some of those topics. You're walking towards these issues around healthy and unhealthy relationships. How are kids receiving that? When you say they've been, it's been glossed over or untouched in the past, like now that you're touching on these things, is there a reluctance to the teens that you're working with? Are they thirsty for this stuff? How does it hit them? I kind of experienced the full spectrum, but uh, the vast majority are grateful. A lot of times the kids will ask me, like, why do you talk about, why do you want to talk about this stuff for a living? And in one class, it was actually another student, a ninth grader who said, because not talking about these things is why they keep getting worse. And so I get a lot of my wisdom from the students themselves and um, really allow them to construct an understanding instead of just positioning myself as the expert and telling them that they need to believe me because I have all the answers. I actually would much rather them question, even me. I, I let them know that I'm not telling them anything that's untrue, but critical thinking is such a valuable asset at any stage of life. So I, I welcome their, their inquiries. I get feedback from them. And the most important part of the program that makes it a lot less awkward is the fact that it's incredibly trauma-informed. This is a huge passion for me, but I actually set up the whole program day one, first five minutes talking about the fact that we don't know each other's stories. So I honor the fact that many of them probably have firsthand experience or know somebody who has. And I also let them know that I've had my own experiences. And from that place, we come up with agreements. We agree to keep an open mind. We agree to respect one another. We agree to ask questions. So I love that I can frame it in that context because it takes some of the scary weirdness out of the equation right off the bat. So trauma-informed is, is such a key word and almost at the risk of becoming a buzzword right now, but I don't want to take away from its depth and its importance. And, you know, you've got me thinking, uh, as I get older, I've started to understand, or at least I've I've come to understand, it's my own perception, but I feel like everybody has trauma. And I don't, I think it took me a long, long time to recognize trauma in my own life for what it really was and how it had a lasting effect. But then also, I think because a lot of us folks my age or who grew up in the situation I grew up in, we were coached not to talk about trauma. So you end up becoming an adult thinking that you might be isolated in your trauma and that others might not have it. I don't know, is, am I off base there? Like, I feel like everyone has trauma and we should make it okay to talk about. That's one of my main missions in life right now. So I could not agree with you more. Uh, what we're experiencing right now is a collective trauma, first of all, in the world on a large scale, whether we're talking about the pandemic or racial injustice. Um, there's so many traumatizing factors that we're experiencing as a global society. But even to go back to what you were saying before about our, our early experiences, a lot of people are familiar with the ACEs study, the Adverse Childhood Experiences study. But a lot of the things in that study even are, are big T traumas. I like to call them like um, abuse, 
overt neglect, having an incarcerated parent. So I think many of us who have experienced even complex trauma, which could come from just growing up with emotionally unavailable parents, we tend to minimize our experience because it's not one of the big T traumas. I could use my husband as an example for this. Uh, he is a stage four cancer survivor. So knowing what we know about emotional trauma, there's there's an element of there. But even in his perspective, that, that type of a trauma response is reserved for people who are soldiers, right? Or people who've had more blatant obstacles, which is ironic because I don't know how it gets more blatant than stage four cancer. But right, right. Uh, there's there's a lot of misperceptions in our culture about what trauma is. I think, I wish there was a, I'm going to work on this. This is part of my mission is to find other ways of explaining the phenomenon without using the word trauma, because so many people automatically go to like car accident right, <laughs> when you say right. trauma yeah. and when you explain that it can come from just not having healthy attachments to other people, they're, they're like, oh yeah, I have that. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Well, trauma seems akin to tragedy and tragedy is, is uh, and this is, you know, my definition of it, my understanding of it, but tragedy, tragedy usually centers around um, a specific incident. And so uh, when people have a tragedy, it happens to them and they might have a tragic, but you don't often hear about like a tragic life unless it's a series of tragedies that unfold. But I think maybe trauma is considered in the same light. Trauma is a thing that happens. But what I'm hearing from you is that trauma can be not just a thing that happens, like the big T in terms of abuse, overt neglect, uh, or health conditions like stage four cancer, but in the small T sense, it can be a series of circumstances, situations, dynamics, behaviors, relationships that really stretch trauma out over time. How many of your, so first off, is that right? And second, are kids even aware of that as a thing? Because I'm sure I was not as a teenager aware of trauma as being a thing that can be stretched out. I'm willing to bet most adults aren't quite there yet either. Mm. So since the adults are, are lacking in that awareness, obviously the, the students are too, but they're very open to it. And one of the best sort of gateways to this conversation that I found is, is switching it from the emotional piece to the physiological piece. Okay. So they can understand that they can have stress that is stretched out over a period of time. And once we start talking about what stress does to the body and to the brain, it, when you get stuck in perpetual fight or flight mode, which is a trauma response, they're able to see that their behaviors, especially the ones that they feel are automatic or uncontrollable, are coming from those life experiences that were stretched out. So we have really great conversations about just what happens in your brain, how you how your brain shuts down and doesn't allow you to think clearly. The executive functioning part, this prefrontal cortex goes offline when you are triggered to the extent where fight or flight kicks in and takes over. And one of my most powerful teaching moments came in a classroom where there was an at-risk student. Actually, the some of the faculty members told me they were probably the quote, worst student in, in the building and, and ninth grade. And um, obviously I wasn't deterred by that. I tend to really connect well with the at-risk students, probably because I have this trauma-informed lens. But this particular student, when we were having the discussion about fight or flight, what happens in your brain, and the fact that you can't think clearly if you're, you know, the amygdala, the, the caveman part of your brain takes over, the look of sheer relief and 
release that I saw on this individual was, I will never forget it as long as I live. And he actually thanked me after class. Like this, this student probably had gone 13, 14 years thinking that he was broken, that there was something wrong right. with him. So when I explained it in terms of the fact that our nervous systems are set up to keep us safe, they're not set up to keep us out of detention. <laughs> this kiddo was validated. You start to really embrace the role that the adults around you um, assigned to you. And so he was, he or she was assigned this role of being the worst student. And no teacher may have said that specifically to this student, might have, but let's assume they didn't, they still probably signaled that to the kid who then adopted it and said, well, I'm the worst student, something's wrong with me. Meantime, you come in with the trauma-informed lens and you help this kiddo understand you have trauma in your life and here's what it does to your brain and to your heart and to your response uh, index. And yeah, I can, I can imagine the sense of relief. And, and I, I don't mind sharing that it was a long time, well into my adult life, when I started to unpack a series of traumatic events in my life as a teenager. And I understood all the coaching and conditioning that went into how I responded to that trauma. Because for years, I carried a lot of guilt about how I responded until I realized I was coached to respond in a certain way. And I bet that takes, that takes a lot to unpack with a kid, doesn't it? It, it doesn't, it doesn't, because I mean, obviously I also followed that whole conversation up with the fact that understanding how your nervous system works doesn't get you out of trouble. Like you can't go to an administrator <laughs> or or a police officer and be like, listen, fight or flight. I, my frontal cortex was offline. Like that's, that's not going to get you out of trouble, but. Oh, that's really good. Cause you know what? I, a, a smart kid could use that. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, I would hope not, but it's possible. <laughs> but what I really on, want them man. to understand is the conditioning piece because mm. I want them to use that for good. I want them to understand that just as we're conditioned to react inappropriately, we're more than capable of choosing different reactions. I always tell them we don't get to choose what happens to us, but we always get to choose how we respond. So that's where the whole mindfulness and you know wellness piece comes in because if you can't get to that place of calm or slow yourself down enough, it doesn't feel like a response. It feels automatic. And so getting them to understand that how they're wired isn't their permanent. We talk a lot about the default settings. So we, we address what their current default setting is. And then I let them know that that can change. And that came so much from my personal life. I had chronic anxiety and panic disorder for most of my life. I don't even think I was breathing. And once somebody told me that it didn't have to be that way and that I could sort of rewire myself. I was all over that and it worked. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. I, actually, I want to talk about that a little bit because you come by this work, honestly, if you will. I mean, having come through this uh, as a teenager in your own right, dealing with chronic anxiety and you even write about it in your blog and in your 2020 blog activity is pretty strong. And I understand you're going to refresh a website. Is it called the Patty McLean? Is that right? It is. Yes. The, PattyMcLean.com uh, wasn't available. So I figured uh, if I wanted to learn how oh, to be more confident, thanks. I might as well throw an article in there. <laughs> you are not, you're not, you it is absolutely fantastic. As soon as I saw that website, I said, she's not just any old Patty McLean. She is the Patty McLean. So if you're listening, I encourage you to get out there and visit thepattymcclain.com. And there's a there's a blog I want to ask you about. You said it's one of your most popular ones, and it's titled 
The Life and Death of Danger Girl, a firsthand look at why good kids get wasted. And I, I love that title, and it drew me right in. And in it, you write, uh, I'm quoting here, I'm a friendly, outgoing people person. I have above average intelligence and a loving family, and I can drink a fifth of Jack Daniels straight from the bottle and still function. Guess which one of these traits helped me meet my needs as a teen? And I'll give you a hint. It wasn't my brain or my bubbly personality. That's amazing synopsis. And I encourage you, everyone to go out and read that blog. But tell me a little bit about what was happening there. But there's so many lenses I could address that. <laughs> there's so many. All right, let's, <laughs> let's, let's approach it this way. So, you, so let's just talk about then maybe you went through a period where you were uh, using a coping mechanism. It sounds like in the form of uh, Jack Daniels. And um, you go on to write in other areas, I think even in, in this blog, perhaps, about what kids are looking for in terms of certainty, variety, significance, connection. And it sounds like maybe those needs being unmet were among the catalysts for using this as a coping mechanism. What a wild ride that must have been for you. It was a wild ride to connect the dots. And it was, I, I also write in the blog how blessed I am to have survived that phase uh, without being hurt or arrested or, you know, mm -hmm. a lot of things that could have happened. So uh, I want to express that gratitude one more time. But um, once I started to learn about human needs and learn about my own stress response and my own complex trauma, I have always wondered why I respond to things differently. But then once I got into exploring human needs psychology and understanding certainty and variety, my, my drinking made so much sense because it did meet those needs on a high level. And so we can, we can meet our needs in healthy ways and unhealthy ways. And I've been blessed to find both, both avenues, but Danger Girl really became this symbol for how I was stepping outside of myself to cope instead of going within and addressing the root cause. It was much more a symptoms management approach that probably did some damage to my liver. <laughs> and uh, thankfully there was no YouTube or TikTok or any social media back then because my career would look really different right now if there was. Um, so. <laughs> yeah, I, quick side note, feel the same. Having been you know, somewhat irresponsible college-age kid, I'm super thrilled I'm as old as I am. Uh, <laughs> that, you know, actually, let's just pause there for a minute because you know, we're talking about the certain responses and how we adopt unhealthy behaviors, but there's a compound effect when you attach TikTok, YouTube, Snapchat to these things. It, it does feel like there's an amplifier effect to some of these bad behaviors because now you're not just behaving irresponsibly. Everyone's recording you doing that. So have you faced that situation in the kids you work with? Absolutely. And I haven't really had a chance to dive into this, but as you pointed out, since I'm never stopping, um, on the horizon, one of the things that I can see coming is finding ways to address the trauma that results from social media. And I guess the big T social media trauma would be like cyberbullying, which mm -hmm. people are familiar with, but I'm seeing just young people, even in middle school or younger, meeting their needs for approval and validation uh, through social media. So in the past, uh, a student with a complex childhood trauma would maybe be anxious or avoidant as far as how they 
relate to other people, right? So those are attachment styles. But when you take that attachment style, that way of relating to other people and you magnify it digitally with people, hundreds of thousands of people all over the world, it could get really messy and it could also have bigger long-term ramifications in my opinion. Obviously, I haven't started really digging into this, but I'm seeing it from so many of the students I've worked with in my private practice, the people I teach in person. I'm just seeing that the connectedness is somehow leading to more isolation. And that seems like oxymoron, but it's right, right. That paradox exists. And I think that understanding emotional trauma is going to help unlock some of that. I think that connectedness leading to a deeper sense of isolation is very real. And and I think that we have a generation of kids right now who are as isolated as they've ever been, um, even if they're more connected than anyone's ever been in history. And I'm not going to lie to you, as a parent, as a supporter of all things education, I'm pretty terrified of what is going on with our kiddos. And I'm not sure Honestly, I'm just not sure what we're going to do about it. And I'm not sure that our education system is currently set up to handle it. Gosh, what are we going to do about this? I mean, come September, I'm not going to lie. I don't have a good question here other than to say, I'm really scared. Okay, well, um, I'm going to honor that fear because I think that we're all experiencing it as parents, as educators. Absolutely, since those are the two realms that I spend the most time in. But I also want to give a shout out to the kids and let you know that every time I've brought a discussion like this to them, that they're able to think critically about it. And one of the things that gives me a lot of hope that doesn't get discussed as much is this idea of post-traumatic growth. So I mentioned earlier that we're experiencing a collective trauma and nobody's especially not me. Um, Nobody's going to deny what kids are experiencing right now and the injustice and the isolation. But I I wanted to address that, but I also want to make sure that resilience and grit make it onto the table because kids are so resilient. So in my opinion, the way that we could address this through schools in our own homes is to open up these discussions and remind kids that they're resilient that, that conditioning that you talked about earlier about how you were sort of coached in your reaction, that applies in this scenario too. Are we coaching kids that they're going to, you know, have a long time pulling out of this or are we coaching them to be resilient and to recognize their strengths and the gifts and the opportunities that come from this? I really appreciate where you're coming from. And I, and I love that term, which I hadn't heard before about post-traumatic growth. And, and you can offer that up without invalidating post-traumatic stress. Uh, and the, you know, the injury part of that whole process. But when you add growth in there, it does have, for me anyway, this kind of asset-based connotation, which I like. But tell me, how do we deliver this or how do you deliver this to kids in an authentic way? Because I'm pretty experienced at getting eye rolls from, you know, my kids in my own house. That's the privilege of being a parent is having. Well, that's a given. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Somebody so, else but, is going to have to teach this to my kid. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's the, kind of the same, but you, you personally can only reach uh, so many kids through your work. So how do we set teachers up to deliver this kind of uh, ethos, this post-traumatic growth uh, sensibility in a way that's authentic? Because I'm not sure 
our teachers, given everything they have to deal with, and by the way, the own trauma that they're going through, which we have to probably talk about at some point, but what's it going to take for, for teachers to connect with kids in, a, in an authentic way? I think you just answered your own question. Um, <laughs> right. They they have to they have to be willing to explore it for themselves. We can't take someone else somewhere where we're not willing to go ourselves. I love teaching teachers about emotional trauma, and so much of that work starts with the individual. Because as teachers, we're constantly modeling for our students. So if you're a math teacher, you have to model how to solve the problem, right? But at the basic level, every single one of us, when we go into a classroom, whether it's a digital classroom or a live classroom, we're modeling how we're being. So kids will kids will feel where you're coming from way before they're going to listen to what you're saying. So the new book, uh, you mentioned it in the beginning, my um, This Is Hard and I'm Tired book, it actually, the goal of it is to open up this conversation because I know teachers aren't okay right now, many of them, probably most of them. And I wanna honor that because that's also how you get into it with the kids, right? You can't, you can't tell people about this stuff. You have to plant the seeds, you have to open up the conversation because it, it is sensitive and it is pervasive and it is complex. So I love just starting with small concepts like being calm, or connecting with yourself, connecting with other people. So my work with teachers is completely parallel to my work with students. Actually, my whole goal in working with teachers is to reach more students with this information because they're the ones who are with them every single day. As you pointed out, I can only get so far. So my, my big goal and dream is to have more trauma-informed teachers who are taking better care of themselves so they can show kids what that looks like. We can't tell kids to be resilient and take care of themselves if we aren't there ourselves. That's just hypocrisy. And a teenager will sniff that out from five miles away. <laughs> yeah, they really will. And unfortunately, I, I do see a lot of that. So my work is in the education um, industry side of things. And there's a lot of companies, publishers that are trying to draw on the, the SEL movement. And sadly, uh, I don't think they have a lot of substance to them. At the same time, I'm also seeing schools going through kind of a, a, a check the box um, effort to like show a video on resilience. And it's usually the equivalent of a 1980s animation that kids, I mean, talk about your eye roll, holy cow. But let me ask you this, this is interesting because you wanna reach more students by really empowering educators. And that's the name of your Facebook group, by the way, which if you're an educator, you should go find your way to that. But I asked you, I asked you before about, you know, are the students that when you engage with them and how do they meet you with some reluctance, with some openness. But the one thing that was pretty clear is they do have the capacity to unpack these issues, address them and work through them with your guidance. I'm curious, you know, when you talk about teachers having to model that same thing, go through a process of self-reflection, awareness and acknowledging their own trauma, like. Are, are teachers reluctant? Are they accepting of it? How do they react to this work? The full gauntlet, right? So even, <laughs> even in the change Likewise, process, the full right, gauntlet. You, yeah. you have the, um, the early adopters, the people who are eager. Mm -hmm. Honestly, it comes down to personality and motivation style, but I have met very few teachers who teach for summers off and, and good insurance, especially in 2021. Right. So yeah, and let me just pause there because I've, I've addressed this fallacy before, which is the, the perception 
among a lot of folks who are not in education, the teachers are in it for the 8 a.m. to 3 p.m. nine month schedule. And that's such a pervasive lie because teachers are working eight to eight, six to seven days a week. They give themselves a little bit of time off in the summer, but they're almost immediately in planning mode. And it drives me bananas. So anyway, I just want to pause and, and honor Thank that because that. <laughs> it's really, really important that people understand teaching is a 365 job. Okay. You were saying. Well, that's actually what I've been hearing from the teachers. So just like in the classroom, when you want to find out where the kids really are and you do a sort of a formative anonymous assessment, I, I did one of those in my Facebook group. I asked teachers how they really were doing and what they would want their administrators or other people to know. And that's actually where the title came from. I can't tell you how many of them put in the feedback form that it's hard or that they're tired. So Ooh. shout out to my, my <laughs> team yeah, for yeah. helping with the new title. But ironically, the, the former title was Tools to Thrive. And so being trauma-informed and sensitive, I understand that thriving is not really on the radar for teachers at the moment. Obviously, that's the ultimate goal. So with the teachers and with the students, such a big part of this work is meeting them where they're at in a non-judgmental way, honoring their journey and invalidating that. So many teachers and, and teens just want people to listen. Like there are things we can't fix right now. So if we come in at like, how are we going to fix this? They it's it's overwhelming, especially since they're in the trenches and having the experience every single day. So when I do professional development, this is from my years as a classroom teacher, it was always so insulting when people came in and tried to train us like we weren't professionals. So mm, I right. absolutely start all my trainings with acknowledging the fact that they are the professionals in the room. They're the experts in their classroom. And then my goal is to help them take better care of themselves and and I also call out all the buzzwords. You mentioned trauma-informed being on the, the verge of a buzzword, and I hope it doesn't get there, but it probably will. But SEL with the checkboxes, self-care. Do not mention self-care to a teacher right now, just for the record. It does not go well. Why, um, why, why, why not? Tell me understand why. Because it's they overused? Help, or they help me or? understand why because of how it's being delivered. They're, oh. they're not saying that they shouldn't take care of themselves. They're saying please don't give me 87 hoops to jump through and then be like, and by the way, when you're done, don't forget to take care of yourself. I understand oh, right. why that's, it's not delivered well. And one teacher even put it so powerfully in the feedback form. They said, I'm not going to get an email telling me to eat lunch, but I will get an email telling me if I forget to hand my lesson plans in. And so right. the, um, there is an administrative piece to this. And I love working with and training administrators as well. I had the best, most supportive administrative team when I was teaching. It was one of the hardest parts of leaving, but they all still support me and encourage me. And the fact that I know that that's possible encourages me to have these tough conversations, like meet the teachers. It's it's not about making excuses or coddling them, but experiencing what's happening right now it goes a long way to just be like, I see how hard you're working. We have to meet teachers where they're at, which doesn't mean just telling them that they're heroes and then saying, by the way, here's your list of 50 things. You have to, I think what I'm hearing is you have to acknowledge like, yeah, it makes sense. You're tired. It is hard. And it's only in acknowledging that, that you can get through to the other stuff. Absolutely. And, and to get through to the things that we're calling buzzwords that we know are so important, 
social emotional learning, trauma-informed teachers, like these things literally saved my life. And Ooh. so I am super passionate, but I have to understand that there's so much riding on the delivery because you're absolutely right about the SEL checkboxes. And teachers have told me that. I, I asked them about their experience, if they felt that they were trauma-informed. Half of them didn't even know what that meant. When I asked if they used SEL, or what their thoughts were on SEL. It was split about 50-50 between it's so important and it's being relegated to these checkboxes. So one of the things, as an instructional coach, I learned this concept and I still to this day preach it. It's that we want to take these initiatives and make them integrated instead of supplemental. So a lot of what I do in the new book and in my training is, is say, what are you already doing that fits in this category? I would say the vast majority of the teachers I worked with are are high achievers and they care so much. And that combination of high achieving and caring is actually what's leading to their burnout. So my, my phrase is I have this opportunity to step back and be like, all right, I know that good teaching, best practices include social emotional learning, include a trauma-informed lens, include self-care, include modeling ways of being. So I need to help them remember that and see it as fully integrated instead of one more thing they have to do. Because there's no teacher who's not going to do these things if it's going to help a kid, hopefully. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. God, you hit on a key phrase there, one more thing. And I think that is, it speaks to how things like this are delivered to teachers. And if it's served up as you have to do this, it's received as, great, now I have one more thing I have to do. Whereas if it's served up as, a means to improve your own practice as an educator and deepen your connection with kids, it's integrated into your everyday work. I feel like that could be received a little bit better. Especially when they're celebrating the fact that they're already doing it. Yeah, well, that's true. Yeah, and building and celebrating on the foundation they've already laid. Yeah, you're right, you're right. They're already doing this stuff. They just need to remember that how important it is and that maybe it's being called something different. I mean, the, the way education initiatives go is a lot of recycling of the same concepts with new phrases. Well, At the end of the day, we teach true. kids. <laughs> so. That's true. But let me let me push you a little bit here about the labeling issue and, and some of the, the risk that comes with assigning buzzwords or labels. So right now, for example, and I'm not, this isn't so much a push as it is just a, a line of inquiry. So right now, big concern is learning loss. Learning loss is attached to so much of the conversation. When I talk to superintendents, district administrators, heads of curriculum instruction, then when I talk to uh, providers, curriculum developers, everyone's really worried about learning loss. And there's lots of different ways we could come at this, maybe ways we could reframe it so that we don't assign blame about it, but we accept it for what it is. There's lots of conversations, but the words learning loss have power right now because everyone understands them. Now, just put that on the shelf for a second. When we're talking about the health and wellness of our kids and our teachers, as it relates to social, emotional learning and well-being in particular, we don't really have the equivalent of learning loss. Like we don't have a common phrasing around wellness loss. And I'm wondering why is that? And, and should it be deserving of some kind of label that's, that's equally understood? When you say learning loss, everyone gets it. We may have different opinions about it, but at least we understand what we mean. But we just don't have that alliteration, you know, phrase for 
some of the setbacks we're experiencing. I'm curious what you think about that. I am quickly scrambling to try to find some alliteration because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's, it's yeah. So, get a dictionary um, in your thesaurus because I'm struggling with the phrase. It's just as pervasive though, and mm -hmm. you will see things though. Um, a quick Google search will help you see um, what they're calling a mental health crisis for mm -hmm. young people. I, I wish teachers were part of that equation too, because burnout and what teachers experience could fall in that mental health category as well. And I don't even mean in a diagnosable way. That's why I love to talk about the trauma-informed emotional trauma piece is to help people understand that mental health goes so far beyond mental diagnosis. So um, you'll read about the mental health crisis. You'll see that suicide rates are up. You'll see that drug overdose rates are up. You'll see that you know, isolation is playing into so many different struggles that that we know are problematic or actually trickier to regain. So in my opinion, I am, have been a curriculum specialist and this is nothing against the curriculum, but in my opinion, in my experience, making up the learning gains is going to be a little bit easier to create a system for. And it's also going to be more like everybody's on that same page. Everybody lost the same amount of time with the curriculum. Not everybody internalized this experience the same way emotionally. Some kids and teachers are fine. Some kids and teachers are thriving. Some kids and teachers are not okay and they're gonna need a lot of help to get back to okay. So learning loss is something that you can quantify. This is not something that you can quantify. So maybe that's why it doesn't have alliteration, but I, I hope more people are talking. I, I hope more people are talking about it too, because you're right. It, the by nature of its definition, learning loss is is easier to codify, and we can build a standards based program to it. The Choose Love Movement curriculum is is the one that I'm most passionate about. There. I'm sorry, I want to make sure I, I hear it correctly. What's it called? It's called the Choose Love Movement. Choose it was, Love Movement. Okay. It was started by. Scarlett Lewis, she lost her son, Jesse, in the Sandy Hook tragedy. And so she's been working very closely with legislators and SEL experts because her belief, even as a parent who lost a child in the worst context, is that SEL, these, these character emotional learning pieces, are the way around tragedies like that. She feels that if the young man who committed that atrocity had had his emotional needs met, that it could have saved her son and all the others. So she's really passionate about it. I was, I got to go to a training with her and I've been following her work really closely for years, but um, the nuance for her work is it talks a lot about the things we've been talking about here, just understanding neuroscience at basic levels, understanding trauma, and she kind of puts it all together. So actually a, a portion of the proceeds from my new book are going to be donated to her program as well. Right on. More power to you and all the more reason to Get on the list and wait for that book to come out because uh, teaching is hard and it makes sense that they're tired, but it also, it also makes sense why you're in this work to me. I'm really starting to, to get it in the sense that there is, there's so much work to be done and teachers need to be surrounded by people like you who are supporting them in that work. In that way, you're going to lift up an awful lot of students. And so I want to I want to make sure we we revisit a couple of these things. First off, everyone has to go check out thepattymclean.com. I mean, it's amazing. Just the URL, just the website address is pitch perfect to me. And there you're going to see some amazing blog posts. And um, I'm also going to encourage folks to go out and find that 
Teen's Guide to Wellness, Purpose, and Abundance. It's available on Amazon, if I'm not mistaken. And the new ebook coming out, uh, This is Hard and I'm Tired. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Brief yep. Guide to, what's it called? Wait, I'm getting it. I'm doing a very, very poor pitch here, but tell me the name of your. It's called This is Hard and I'm Tired, out. A Brief Guide for Overwhelmed Educators. This is um, Hard and I'm Tired, A Brief Guide for Overwhelmed Educators. And you're touching on such amazing work. And I'm really grateful to have spent this time with you, Patty. I feel like I've learned a lot. The whole purpose of this exercise, this podcast, is for me to question things and question my own understanding, my own sense of privilege, but also to help come to some resolution in some ways about uh, why I view things the way they do and how I can shape that view. And you've really helped me today. I really appreciate you being here. Thank you. It was so much fun. Do I get to ask you a question now? So that is it. Jim questions everything. And now, as I try and do with all my guests, I invite them to ask me something. I'm very nervous, as usual. I have no idea what you're going to ask, but hit me with it. Well, we touched uh, a little bit on your journey already. So reflecting in your journey of understanding your conditioning and in your own uh, adverse experiences, what do you think has been the biggest asset for you in your healing journey? That is a really good question. Note the big pause there. So what has been an asset for me in my own journey towards healing? I'll tell you, that's, that's a tough one. And I, and I probably will answer it in the same way that a lot of folks try to answer it, that maybe no one thing, but I think the thing that, the thing that I started that really helped me a lot actually was for a long time, and you might relate because you do too many things for any one person to have a right to do. But also I, I'm going to guess that you're probably thinking about a lot of things at any given time. That's one of my issues. And as I really started to come to terms with the trauma in my life and the things I've had to overcome. My first approach, if you will, or I should say my default approach was to try and think of all the things all at once and solve for them all at the same time. And it was just too much. It was, it was too much of a lift to try and think about everything and solve everything simultaneously. No one can do that. And it wasn't until I started to really break things down into the cast of characters that were involved into the circumstances surrounding uh, events and uh, situations. And then also into like really understanding that things that happened were not only out of control, out of my control in the moment, but I never had an opportunity to be in control based on events that led to that. But you know, in the moment and in the years uh, subsequent to that, it's really hard to see that. So I think as I got further away, you know, and went through this process largely on my own, when I started to separate things and concentrate on them, I grew deeper in my understanding. And then it was only after separating them that I could bring them back together and have a more comprehensive understanding of, you know, what conditions existed prior to trauma, why that affected what happens and my own reaction to it. And then the long cascade effect for that. So that's, that's part of, you know, a process that I think a lot of us have to go to when we're confronted with situations, you know, we may not be ready for. And so being able to really just break things down a little bit was, was incredibly helpful for me. Yeah. I think that's, that's been an interesting part of my journey. I, ha I have to say, I've never been asked that question and I don't know if I've ever given voice to it in that way. 
So in sharing that with you, I'm not even sure it made sense. It absolutely did. It, it sounded so much like perspective. And that's a gift that we can give ourselves. That's a gift we can give others. That's a gift we can give people. And you also now have the terminology of post-traumatic growth that you can reflect on a little bit now and add that as, as a win during your journey. <laughs> that's a big win. The notion of post-traumatic growth really resonates with me, as is naming these things as gifts. It really was a gift uh, to have perspective. And in much the same way, let me say this, it's been a gift to be able to get to know you a little bit better and to spend time with you. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you.